All right, Acts chapter 10, we'll get started tonight. I really did enjoy, what a tremendous homecoming service. Um, we had uh, time together, time with people we hadn't seen in a while, and then time with just one another. It was an encouragement. We had 255 people here, and, um, and we didn't have, actually, I hate to say this, thankfully not all of them stayed to eat because we didn't have tons of room uh, in the fellowship hall. We added more tables. And so it's just a, a testament of how this church is growing and how God is continually being gracious to us, and, and I praise Him for it. Acts chapter 10, verse 34 Remember where we're at, all are present uh, to hear what's to be preached. Do you need, are you counting, Danny? Sorry. Uh, you want to start over? <laughs> all right. Um, yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, so remember what happened last week, ready? All, everybody was, was sitting down, ready to hear what was preached. Cornelius actually says in Acts 10, 33, uh, we are all here present before God to hear all that you've commanded uh, I've been commanded by the Lord. And so, who's he talking to there? Peter. And so, Peter preaches in the house. And here's the text where we're at today. And what we're calling the Gentile Pentecost Part 2. Starting in verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen before him by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who's been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were uh, hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Let's just start with this question. Would, would you like to live under kosher laws where you must have certain sets of silverware that you use at certain times and not others? Or uh, where you're required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem at least once to pray and kiss the stones of what's believed to remain of the walls of the temple, or where you on Sundays or Saturdays can't turn on your lights, no kindling of fire, would you like to be told that you have to do all of those things in order to be a true Christian? 
No, obviously not. Well, last week, Peter and Cornelius are both, in a real sense, converted. Remember, we talked about that. Cornelius, the centurion, the Gentile, he receives a vision from the angel who says, one is going to come to you by the name of Peter, and he's going to tell you all that you need to hear. Cornelius is going to be converted through that. He's going to become a saved person who was lost and now is saved. But remember, Peter needed to be converted too, but in a different way. Not conversion as in salvation, but converted out of what? Yeah, Judaism in the sense of Judaism being the only God's, one of God's people, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So uh, he absolutely needed to be converted in the sense where he's an Orthodox Jew in the first century who had now become a Christian, but nevertheless, remember he was taught the Goyim, the Gentiles, the dogs were unclean. Remember we talked about that last week. Peter needed to be converted through that Two, uh, Peter was taught last week that nothing that God had created, particularly no man, woman, boy, or girl, were ever to be considered on their own unclean. Peter goes to the house of the Gentile, Cornelius, which in itself is taboo. And then in these touching moments, I remember this last week, Cornelius, he falls down before Peter. And Peter has him arise saying, you're just a man like I am. He refuses to accept the worship of God himself and he refuses to treat Cornelius the Gentile as a dog. And it's an amazing statement on what the gospel does to God's people. A key verse we talked about last week in the section is in verse 28, don't call anything unclean. But all that being said, all of that does not equal true religion. Just not to have prejudice on its own, just to have a respect for all people of every nation as we ought to with the Spirit of Christ, to have a desire for all people to love uh, and and to show the love and, and see the grace of Christ. That's what you ought to have as believers, but that's not in itself Christianity. And not yet, at least. And that's what we deal with Uh, this week in the second part of what we're calling the Gentile Pentecost. And here's what we want to look at tonight, if we have time. Number one, in verses 34 through 35, I want to deal with this question that comes up. Uh, What does this mean in verse 35 when it says, But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That could be uh, certainly confusing left on its own. And so, what does that mean? Does that mean that if people are just sincere in their own religion, even if they're outside of Christ, that they're going to heaven? Uh, because many people believe that. So, we're going to deal with that question first. Second, the gospel comes to Cornelius in verses 36 through 43. And for those who ever wonder, what's the basic gospel presentation message? You've got one here. What do I say to people when they want to know the gospel? You've got a guide tonight. And then number three, the Gentile Pentecost proper. The Spirit comes in verses 44 through 48. How do you understand this? Is this the norm for every believer's experience? And, and so this is, uh, then we're going to close and consider what on earth does all of this mean for the Christian church? And friend, it means far more than you can possibly imagine, I guarantee. Okay, so let's begin. That's the overview. Let's, let's dig in here. What does this mean in verses 34 through 35? Let's look at this text. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome 
to him. I want you to look also at verse 2 of Acts chapter 10 as well. When it's talking about Cornelius and introducing us to the character of Cornelius. And this is what it has to say about him. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. And then also in Acts chapter 10 verse 31 we have this text. And he said, Cornelius... The angel says, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. The question we want to ask right now is, does this mean that Cornelius was saved at this point? Was his family saved at this point? What does it mean that in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. By the way, I ask a lot of questions and I ask them really fast. If you ever want to answer one of those questions, just put your hand up and I'll make sure you can answer. Yeah. You do have to know God to fear him, but I think we have to define who that God is. And so that's it. That's it. He is. He is. But even, even the sense, we would have the argument discussion don't those who still follow Judaism today know and fear? one God? Who is this one true God? How does he flesh himself out, right? And so, that's a, I mean, these are good questions because it's almost as if the Bible is tempting us to say he's a Christian, right? It's almost tempting us to say this is somebody who fears God. Where did that come from? How do we explain this off then? I think those are all great comments and good questions. And so, I, I think what we need to start with uh, is, is the idea of what it doesn't mean. Right, so let's let's just break back and begin with this thought and this understanding. If you had uh, an Eskimo who who doesn't know anything about Jesus, but is very religious, he's a very sincere Eskimo. Does he go to heaven? You know, I ask that question to a lot of people, a lot of people, and you'd be surprised by how many people would answer yes. I understand the sincerity there because I think it's a part of being an American. We want the, the fair, the justice side, right? Uh, and yet, we, it's a very wrong answer to, the, to suspect that this one would go to heaven. Even if he has a sincere faith, even if he has a practical general faith, but outside of Christ, there, there is no way you get to heaven by being sincerely religious. Nobody gets to heaven by being sincerely religious, nobody gets to heaven by praying or doing good deeds. You're missing the major element. So then what does that statement mean? In every nation, the man who fears him, fears God, and does what is right is welcome to him. Let's start with what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that Cornelius was saved at this point. And here are the subpoints. They're all just, they're all just text of Acts, okay? Uh, it clearly does not mean that, that, that he was saved at this point. Let's, let's explain why. Let's look at this. Number one, there was an, another message that was absolutely necessary. This comes from Acts 11, chapter 13 and 14. Look at that with me. This is afterwards. This is when Peter's kind of reporting back what happens. It says, and he reported to us, he's telling the story, how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and your household. So as Peter's recounting this, he says those words. It's not a message about prayer. It's not a message about alms. It's not a message about God-fearing. not a message about going to the synagogue. It was nothing like that. It was another message that was to be given. And that message is that by which you will be saved. 
So they're obviously not saved at this point, but they would be saved through that gospel message. Number two, look at our text in Acts 10 and verse 43. This would be the second reason why. The Bible says, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. He does not say to him, All that the prophets bear witness through his name, everyone, your sins are already forgiven. He says, Whoever believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. And I know that that's something you probably know being a Baptist and being in here, being taught the word of God. But, you know, it's sad to me that the common fare of most American clergymen in the United States of America is to say to everybody that because of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Regardless of what you believe or don't believe, as you stand right now, because of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. That's not what the Bible teaches. It is through his name that whoever believes in him will therefore receive forgiveness of sin. I say it lovingly, but bluntly. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you stand right now unforgiven of your sins. No matter how sincere you are. So at this point, he did not know that of Jesus Christ. And third reason... We saw that he's devout, right? We saw this is a devout man. This is obviously a guy who does really, really good things. He's a, he's a devout man. But if you look at Acts 2.5, it says this. It says, remember what happens in Acts chapter 2? What's the story of Acts chapter 2? Pentecost, right? Acts chapter 2 says, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Even as chapter 10, verse 2, Cornelius is a devout man that we learn. But notice what Peter preaches to those devout Jews in Acts 2, 38. Peter says to these devout people, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What did these devout people need to do? Repent. They needed to repent. They needed to return to Christ. What did they need to repent of if they were devout? Well, they needed to repent of trusting in anything other than Jesus. See, you can be devout and trust in yourself and trust in your works and in your prayers and in your church attendance. You can trust in anything. That's devoted But you are not saved if your trust is not in Jesus. And then finally, the fourth reason is chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard this, that is when those at Jerusalem heard once again the report of Peter after encountering Cornelius, it said, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So after the Spirit came upon them, there was a repentance by which they turned to Christ and life came, but it was not before that. Okay, so just even, and we didn't go very far, but just even the book of Acts, there are four reasons from the text right there why you must not say, if you're a sincere Muslim, if you're a sincere Hindu, if you're a sincere unbeliever, as long as you believe and are devout in something, maybe God will accept your sincerity. Here's proof. 
there is no way you can say that Cornelius and his family were saved before that. Now, there's an application for that for us. And it's an important application. The fact that our children read the Bible, go to church, seem to have softened hearts... That is all wonderful, it's glorious, it's, it's prevenient grace as we talked about last week. God is working with them, yes, that's worth celebrating. Praise the Lord, but it's not salvation. We, we don't appreciate it. It's obviously significant here because his prayers and his alms came up as a memorial before God, but it is not salvation. And I'm convinced that many of us, Baptists or Presbyterian people, make that error right at this point. That because my children are devoted to church and they read their Bible and they do good in school, whatever it may be, they're saved. Not so. What does that mean then? It means in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. What does that mean? I think there are two possibilities, which tells you... I'm not entirely, completely sure what that means. But I think there are two possibilities. One, I think the most common one. Peter says God shows no partiality uh, within every nation. Jew or Gentile, there is no partiality here, okay? Uh, but, on the other hand, what I really think uh, many people think when it comes to this is, is, is God welcomes them when there is a spirit-wrought uh, fear in righteousness. That's when God welcomes them. When, when he, he works that in them, and that's an evidence and fruit that they're already belonging to him, regardless of their race, regardless of Jew or Gentile, they are welcome into the kingdom of heaven. That's one explanation, because we know people don't fear God by nature. It's not natural for people to, to fear God. There are none who seek after God, much less those who fear God. There's how many righteous? None, not even one, right? And so those things can't be natural, but as God works in his children in every nation and he brings forth the fruit of true faith, they are accepted without partiality. That's, that's probably the most common answer, and I get it because it kind of makes sense with the context, actually. Uh, there are examples given in the Old Testament. Can anybody think of some Old Testament people who were outside the covenant people of Israel, but who God granted faith? Rahab, right? Absolutely. Ruth? Zipporah, Moses' wife, there are people not from the covenant people, but they were faithful people as best we can discern from the scriptures. That's one view. There's another view, and I, I want you to think about this view too. We talked about it last week, and depending on the time of night, I go towards one or the other. But this one does fit within the context as well. In fact, I think it might fit a little bit better. There's no doubt that God's been working in Cornelius, right? That there's been some work here, because Cornelius is... Is from what people group? And specifically, where is he from? Who does he represent? Rome, that's right. He's a Roman. He's, he's an Italian cohort. And so somehow this guy has neglected and rejected paganism, which is wonderful. He's, he's neglected and rejected idolatry. A monotheism of the Old Testament just appeals to him. He wanted to hear the word of God in the synagogue. He had a love for people. He gave alms. He prayed continually. This is all commendable, and it's not to be spurned at all. Didn't that come from grace? Absolutely it did. See, all of that was God's grace working in Cornelius 
even though he wasn't saved yet. And we talked about this last week, about thinking about our own testimonies, right? There's a time, there should be a time, at least in your life, where you know you repented and you put your faith in Christ. But you know what we tend to forget? Uh, we do it in our testimonies, but we tend to forget that period of time leading up to that moment when we trusted in Christ. Who invited me to church, right? Who, was, who just happened to be preaching about the gospel that day? Or, or who did I just happen to come across that reminded me of, of what I learned all those years? Or, or what family did I happen to be born into that continually poured in the gospel of grace? And you remember what we called that? It's provenient grace. It's provenient grace. All of that is God working in his grace, even though those people aren't saved yet. So, they're not saved yet, but God then sends somebody like a Peter to present the gospel to them, and it's, it's part of his work in saving him. Well, whichever one you want to accept, this text is in not any way, as we want to make sure, teaching that sincerity alone saves you. You got that, right? Only Christ saves you as you learn here. So that answers that question. That's part of the first part. Does anybody have questions or thoughts regarding that? To make myself clear on that? One of two options here. Either they're, they're already saved in the way that God's working this out in them because it's not partial to Jew or Gentile anymore. Or it's part of that prevenient grace that God in his sovereignty and his election even is working in them to be saved. Which is, yeah. Absolutely. And so here's, here's the idea. Is, is, did God know that Cornelius was going to be saved? Yeah, obviously. Obviously. And yet, it, it's almost semantics, isn't it? Like, it almost sounds like semantics. And yet, uh, how many times have we, we heard or understood people who have had opportunities of prevenient grace given to them? It's almost as if God is doing everything possible to get their attention, and yet, they still reject him. You've seen that before, Right. And so, and this is the idea, is, is, and that's why we want to say this, because that alone, God getting someone's attention and God working grace in someone alone isn't what saves them. What saves them is going to be repentance and faith. So, absolutely, good, good question. Any other questions or comments on that? Right, absolutely. It goes back to the idea that every, every human being knows internally that there is a God and yet suppresses that truth. And so when God plants those things in their life to, to bring forth the gospel to them, to remind them of who he is and, and so forth, it's not necessarily what saves them because we know general revelation alone, knowing that God is existing and that he created things alone isn't what saves you. Only the redemptive work of Christ is what saves you. Absolutely. What if Peter had refused to go? That's where we go, right? You want to you do this? He wouldn't have. <laughs> the, the answer is he wouldn't have. You know, that, and I, I wish I had something more to that. Um, who knows uh, the way God works in his sovereignty and the way he works with man's responsibility? Remember, he never works against desire. So, so he would have given Peter the desire to go and to be obedient, and Peter also would have been obedient. <laughs> it works hand in hand. Yeah, Justin. This is the same God that transported Absolutely. Who planted him up and said, Philip, I want you to go here. And Philip's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
There's, there's a revival happening here. What are you thinking? Why are you sending me here? Because he's part of his purposes, right? So, Jonah, yeah, absolutely. We talked about that last week in Joppa, right? Where Peter was. He was in Joppa. So we talked about the idea where, where it, that was even probably in Peter's mind is that Jonah, God told Jonah to do something uncomfortable. In fact, God told Jonah to go preach to the Gentiles, repentance, right? And so it was even in, likely in Peter's mind to think, Peter, what, what's going to happen if you don't do this? So it could have been, the answer to your question is, Peter goes on a boat somewhere to run away from God. God sends another big fish to swallow Peter, and Peter ends up at uh, Cornelius' house just three days later. So uh, there you have it, yeah. Any other questions or thoughts about that? Good stuff, all right. Let's move on now to the the gospel part. Uh, the gospel is going to come now, and this is one of these places we see continually in the book of Acts. There are so many gospel presentations in Acts. It's beautiful. Uh, this is one of those. It starts in verse 36, and we'll do what we did last week and just go verse by verse here. I don't think I'm going to get to the end of this, but that's okay. Um, look at verse 36. It really is okay. I, I say that to say, if you still want to have discussion, we can have discussion. That's what this is for. All right. Verse 36 of Acts 10. Uh, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. What does the gospel bring? Peace through Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 14. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among men. Church, that's the gospel, right? Not world peace, but, but peace because you know this, your greatest war by nature as a human being is with God. From the time you are born in sin apart from grace, you don't want to hear about God. You don't want to follow God's laws. You don't want to think that you're accountable to God. You don't want to trust in God's sovereignty and his wisdom. You don't want to trust anything God says in his word. In fact, you can't stand it. God has a controversy with you. If you are outside of Christ, God is angry with the wicked every day, it says in Psalm 2. Now, there's peace. Jesus shed his blood and says, Father, render yourself peaceable towards those for whom I died. Everything's taken care of, peace through Jesus Christ. But that next phrase, it's in parentheses here in verse 36, is a key phrase in this section. The next phrase at the end of verse 36, you see what it says there? Lord of all. That's amazing. Not Lord of the Jews. Not Lord of the Gentiles. But Lord of all. He is Lord. Let every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the way the gospel always begins, friends. If you want to know how to present the gospel to people, always begin there. Whether you acknowledge it or believe it or not, Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord of all. And in that, there's going to be six elements now of the gospel message, of the basic gospel message. Peter begins here in verse 37. He says this. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with his spirit and with power. Element number one is going to sound kind of weird, and, and that's why I wanted you to start with Lord of all. It's an unusual one where you begin really with the, 
the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ by John the baptizer where he was filled with the Holy Spirit. You remember that story? It's really what we would call the commencement of Jesus' public ministry, okay? That's what the handout says in your notes, okay? Why would we start there? That's a weird place to begin. Have you ever heard somebody start with the gospel message starting with Jesus being baptized? Well, we started there for a couple of reasons because it was the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. This is the beginning of his, his ministry in which he goes out to fulfill all righteousness. Also, it's at that time where the Father says what? Remember a dove ascends and from heaven there's a voice that says, This is in whom? And could God say that about anybody else on the earth? No, not unless they're wrapped up in the righteousness that's given to them in faith in the one Jesus Christ. Absolutely not. And so, uh, not only that, he's, he says, I'm preparing this work for him. You listen to him. God gives his stamp on to Jesus. And so he begins with this, this commencement of his earthly ministry. And then uh, the second element, we have this. It says, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. That's where we have the, the works of earthly, Jesus' earthly uh, ministry. That's exactly what we have here. What were those works? Well, think about this. Remember, this is part of the gospel story. Everyone's under the enslaving power of the devil. You are born under the enslaving power of the devil. And he deals in his earthly ministry of Jesus in, in which he loved, obeyed. He showed the mercy and the grace of God, including the healing of all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. What does that mean? It means that Jesus was in a battle while he was here. Even as we battle with the world, the Lord Jesus stood against the world that did not at first want to accept anything he stood for. And he deals with the temptations that were hurled at him. Not least the temptations of the devil in the wilderness. And he battled them right to the death of the cross. It was a military campaign that our Lord waged against those who were under the dominion and rule of the devil. And so in your gospel message, you, you declare that. You, you declare that in his work, he cast out demons. He resisted the temptation of the evil one. He was perfect in all that he said and he did. Even as we said of the devil, now is your hour in the power of darkness. He took every single accusation that could be hurled against his people and he absorbed all those accusations on the cross so that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Devil, you are a destroyer, but I died for my people, so you can't destroy them. Devil, you're an accuser. I died for my people. There is no accusation you can give that can stick against my people. Devil, you are a slanderer of my people. You are a liar, but I am the truth, and I've given myself for my people. So the Lord Jesus and all that he did in the battle uh, against those who were oppressed by him, uh, he came out victorious. So the second element there is his earthly ministry. The third element is his death. Verse 39. It says, we are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on the cross. I like that. Notice it's not we. It says they. Who's he speaking to? Gentiles. He said they, the, the Jews in Jerusalem. But that, that doesn't mean, it doesn't give you a reason to, to hate Jews, by the way. Never. That's one of the silliest arguments to me. So, sorry, sidebar here. 
It's one of the silliest arguments that you can imagine. If, if you want to use that logic that the Jews are the ones who killed Jesus, then uh, you're the one who killed Jesus as well then because he was wounded for your transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. But it was not that. It was God's predetermined plan. God's the one who killed his son for us. And so, but it was the Jews of that time who were the instrument by which God used to put his son to death. But notice the language he used. Whom they killed by hanging on a cross. The literal translation there. Anybody have anything different than the word cross in their translation? Verse 39. On a tree. Right? Why would that be important? What's that? Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Absolutely. It's in Deuteronomy, right? It was a cursed death in which he took on our sin. His death. And then element number four. If element number three is his death, what's element number four? Come on. Resurrection, obviously, yeah. Anybody, has, anybody question? Sorry, I thought I heard my name. Um, all right. Uh, number, uh, number four, his resurrection, verse 40. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become uh, visible. Notice this isn't done in private, right? Because you have those people who will say, oh, the disciples, they just wanted to see Jesus just so bad. They really wanted to believe that he was alive, that they lived that way. They didn't believe he was going to be raised from the dead, and neither was this some phantom of their imagination. God showed him openly in the presence of hundreds of witnesses. Look at verse 41. It says, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Friends, you... You don't eat and drink with Casper the ghost, right? Uh, That doesn't happen. The the disciples weren't sitting there at some imaginary tea party with an invisible Jesus pretending that he was eating there. No, not at all. He was right there at the table. Put your fingers into the prints of my hand and and surely he was raised from the dead. His resurrection. Number five, uh, Jesus is a judge. Look at verse 42 here. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who would have been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Matthew 28, right? All authority in heaven and earth is given among to me. My friends, that's part of the gospel message. Why? Why would that be part of the gospel message? Because here's why. It's wonderful news to tell them that Jesus is judge of all because it isn't the day of judgment yet. (laughs) Right? You flee to him You have a refuge and and strength in your time of trouble. He's the judge of the living and the dead. And then number six, I don't want you to miss this one. Verse 43. Number six. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. From Moses to Malachi, the whole Old Testament is full of those witnesses who through the name of Jesus Christ, that through him, through Jehovah, who bears the sins of his people, remember, even as he's led as a lamb to slaughter, whoever, Jew or Gentile, who believes in him will be given forgiveness of sins. Which means if you don't believe in him, there's no remission or forgiveness of sins. So you want to know what the gospel is? There's six elements here that are mentioned. Number one, Jesus' public ministry. Why? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Number two, his earthly ministry, he does battle with the devil and he always wins and he demonstrates God and his grace to all who are around him. Number three, he dies. What's the meaning of the cross? Number four, raised from the dead publicly. Number five, he's exalted up into heaven. He will come to judge the living and the dead. Number six, don't ever forget it, forgiveness of sins. Believe in him, trust in him, forgiveness of sins. All right, that's the second part of the gospel message. Anybody have any questions about that? Now's the time because I need more water. That was a load, right? A lot of stuff. Well, let's go ahead and get started to the third one then. So now we looked at the idea of his, uh, his gospel message here. What comes in the culmination of the gospel message is now we've got the Gentile Pentecost proper. Uh, look at verse 44 of Acts chapter 10. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. Uh-oh. <laughs> this seem familiar to anybody who's been here before, right? It's, it's starting. We, we see something's about to happen. Something's going down. The Spirit's falling. And when he comes to the culmination, remember, this is after he preaches the gospel message. When he comes to the culmination of this gospel message, the Spirit falls on the people. Verse 45. All the circumcised believer who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speak with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter goes on to say that. But just stop right here. What does that tell you about the, the Jews who were with Peter? The circumcised believers who were with Peter. They were... They weren't so sure about this so far, right? They had some reservations, I think, about what exactly was happening here with Peter. And yet, God's faithful because he goes down and he gives them the gift and they, they, they remember it. It's like, it's like seeing their own conversions right before their eyes with the Gentiles. And, and so in verse 45, notice in verse 46, they, they wanted to hear what was said here. So, so apparently we can... We can infer that there was likely faith in the midst of this, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Although it doesn't say that, the point is, is that the Spirit came upon them, and there's no doubt that this is exactly parallel to Pentecost. Spirit falls on them, he's poured out on them, they speak in tongues, they magnify God. In the language of Acts 2.11, they declare the wonderful works of God. So what does that mean? People say this is what happens when every believer comes to Christ. That this ought to be every believer's experience. Is it? When you were saved, did you instantly start speaking in tongues? No. That's not every believer's experience. That's not what happens day in and day out when the gospel is preached and everyone knows it. So what does this mean? Remember we talked about this. Acts 1.8 is pivotal. The outline of the book is given in Acts 1 8. You remember what it says? But you will be my, or you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That's the outline of the book right there. It's not at all coincidental that it's at Jerusalem. That the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost with Christians from all Judea and from around surrounding areas. Then the next account uh, is that all Pentecost like when the Spirit comes upon the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. And what happens to the Samaritans? They start 
speaking in tongues. The half-breeds now, as Justin asked me to stop calling them, and the Jew and the Gentile. And then the full-blown Goyim Gentiles, Acts 10, they receive the Spirit, are converted, and they also demonstrate all of those elements of Pentecost to the ends of the earth. This is the extension of Pentecost. It's, it's not a new Pentecost, okay? It's, it's an extension of the first one to the Gentiles, The Pentecost at its most complete work. Notice one other thing in verses 47 and 48, finally, on asking what this means for the church. Because then Peter answered after that. The Spirit fills them. Apparently they're believing in Christ. They trusted him. Verse 47. Surely no one can refuse the water for those to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? Notice what they didn't ask them to do. They didn't ask him to submit to circumcision, did they? No. Shockingly, to the Jewish mind, this would have been mind-blowing. Peter doesn't say, okay, if you want to be real Christians, you've got to be circumcised. But what does he say in verse 47? Baptized. See, water baptism, remember, what is it? It's a visible sign. It's a symbol. It's a mark. It doesn't change the heart, but it's a visible sign that says, I am a Christian. You know, you want to understand baptism, you you talk to a converted Muslim or a converted Hindu. Because Hindus can talk about Jesus all they want, but it's when they're baptized that their family says they're dead to us. If you're a Muslim and you're baptized, you, you may very well be dead, period. That's what really shows that you're a Christian. They understood this is a visible mark. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then here is what's amazing. Verse 48. He ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. But then what happened? They asked him to stay on for a few days. Jews baptized with water, having received the Spirit of God. Gentiles baptized with water, having received the Spirit, they're now at equal footing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is glorious. It's wonderful. That's why they're going to stay together a few days in common fellowship. This is the first multicultural Christian fellowship of the Christian church. That's that's remarkable. And I want you to do this. I'm not going to read it. But I want you on your own time this week to read Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 22. Because it is just perfectly aligned with what happens in gospel unity with both Jew and Gentile come together. So let me wrap all this up. I want us to think about this. Do we make people Jews in order for them to become Christian in our church? I hope you'd say absolutely no way, right? No way. They come to Christ, they believe in Him, they receive the formal mark of being a a part of the church and baptized. and, And in Christ, they're equal footing with all of us. No way do we make them Jews before they become Christians. But I want us to think about this because we have our own way of this. Just throw a couple things out there. Do you make people Americans before you make them Christians? And why do I say that? I say that because I've heard of missionaries who who give their lives to foreign mission fields and they feel uncomfortable with the customs of the Christians in whom they're ministering. Until they become more like us. We'd we'd rather gather together with our own. If that's your attitude, by the way, don't you dare disgrace Christ by going on the mission field. 
You don't make people Americans before you make them Christians. And when they are Christians, your goal is to make them more like Christ, not more like Americans. Incidentally, your, your work is not also to make them into Republicans, Democrats. Your goal is to make them more like Christ. You don't make people more like your nation. You don't make people more like your denomination in order to be Christians. Are they supposed, are they supposed to change their skin color before they become Southern Baptists? You know a term I've heard recently lately and it drives me absolutely insane? The black church. <sighs> Friends, Acts 10 exists. There is no black church. There's no white church. There's just the church. That's it. It's just the church. Do people have to change their skin color before they're welcomed into a believing church of God? A baptized, believing church of God? No! They're brothers and sisters in Christ. Do they have to make them part of the SBC first? Are they Christians? Are they in Christ? Well, they don't look like us. They don't do things like us. They don't smell like us. They don't act like us. If you knew what you look like before the Lord Jesus Christ, you'd be upset too. Are you in Christ? Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? And, and let me just tell you this. Quite frankly, this is why churches remain so small. Because we won't make people Jews in order to make them Christians. But they really better follow the rest of our cultural outliers before they're happy here. I just don't think they'll be comfortable here. Friends, that's not how the Christian church grew. Now, does that mean that we are accepting of unrighteousness? No. But it, but it does mean we, we, we accept differences and we work with them. Does it mean we lessen our standards if they're, they're unbiblical or they're biblical? No, but we actually have to ask whether or not they're biblical. Because maybe they're just plain traditions. And you need to ask yourself if you're wanting to see people converted to your traditions or to Christ. See, here's the glory. When people are genuinely converted to Christ, they're going to work together. They're going to serve together. They're going to be submissive together. They're going to change together. But the issue is always, are they in Christ? That's how the church grew. They fellowshiped. Not as friends, but family. Remember what we're talking about in the book of John. We see this. By this, by your love for one another, will the world know that you are my disciples. And friends, I'm afraid we've fallen into the trap of loving people who are just like us in every way, which is a reflection that we don't actually love people all that much. We just love ourselves. Look at who you love. Anybody different than you? That's the mark. Think about this. This is what screams the work of Christ to the nations, to the world, to the lost and dying world. There's no way these two groups of people should be interacting together, should be loving one another, serving one another, submitting together. It's only God that can do it. And it's a reflection and a mirror of the work of Jesus. So let's ask ourselves, when's the last time Someone outside of the immediate culture that you surround yourself with on Ratliff or Church Road inspired you to have a gospel talk with them. Inspired you to think, you know what? 
I would love for you to come to my church because you would be welcome there. Why? Not because of the type of music we play, not because of the time we shake hands, because we're united by faith together in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you know what that means? Jew or Gentile, you're my brother, you're my sister, you're my family. And that's how we'll see the gospel be reached. We'll see God, the people be reached by the gospel to the glory of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Isn't the church great? Isn't it glorious? Wonderful depiction of that. So I have just a practical encouragement for you. Listen, I don't want you to, to go just, just for people of a different skin color and say, well, you're not my skin color, you should come to our church. I, I, just want, I want culturally different. I want you to step outside of your culture. Now listen to me. If that makes you uncomfortable, then, then I take it back. I want you to do it. <laughs> if, if, that makes you, if that just screams against your body to say, there's no way I could go talk to somebody of a different color, then I change my mind. I want you to go to somebody who's a different color and ask them to come to our church. I want you to start that relationship. But friend, let's even start with somebody who's outside our culture. Outside our immediate Southern Baptist, sweet tea-loving, fast food-loving American culture. Go somebody who's a little bit different than you, who proclaims and professes Christ. Invite them to come with you to church. Begin to minister to them and treat them as if they're not, not a dog, not the goyim, but brother and sister in Christ. All right. Well, that was fun. Um... Any questions? Any comments? Nothing? Come on. Oh. What context? Just, just the idea of, of, you know, the black church down the street. You know? And I don't, I don't think when people say that, they're, they're purposely being... I mean, they're just stating something that, that this church has a predominant culture of. But what happens when you do that? You're, you're putting that label out there that the only people welcome in that church are blacks. I mean, do you think, yeah. what do you think, I guess, the difference would be if I said the Korean church? That would be national, right? Because. But you don't think that there's like a distinct culture that might be happening that's slightly different? Than I think if there's a language barrier, there are ways to. To get around that, to say we have a, a Korean language church. Yeah. Like the Australian church or the European church. Sure, that's nation. Yeah, that, that, that's... Right, but I think the gospel will go against interceding that culture. I think, I think too... Right, right. So I would, I would say that if somebody came up to me and said, well, the Australian church down the road, I, I, that would bother me a little bit. Like, I would understand the idea of you wanting to be around people in your culture and be comfortable, but... This is what this text is all about, is culture being secondary and, and gospel being primary. I think culture kind of, kind of should bow a knee to what's supreme. Not that it should be shamed or discouraged, or that, but I think all cultures are welcome in, in the church. Yeah, so I think we, we would celebrate the fact that there are multicultures in the church. I don't think we would demean that, but I think we would encourage that they, we, we worship together. Because, you know, the reflection, as we know, is that not going to be this way in heaven <laughs> you know there's not going to be the australians over here and then the black church is going to go this way and you know the white church will be out early and so on and so forth that's not how it's going to work <laughs> no we'll be together we won't even know great yeah that's a good question though yeah 
Yeah. Mm. And try to force the Native Americans yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What what would happen, right? If if obviously there there need to be some some truth injected into the paganism or the animism that was there, but what would happen if they you know they worshipped together in loincloths and <laughs> uh, they came together and said, you know, we're, we're going to be covered, uh, but we're going we're gonna to adapt a little bit to get to this because the, what, what's, what's most important is the message of the gospel. And we'll, we'll adapt modesty, modesty to the culture, which is what, by the way, Paul does in 2 Timothy is he, he tells the people, they, they don't adorn, ladies, don't adorn yourselves with, or have a covering over your head. Don't let your hair show or anything because why? That culture would deem that to be Promiscuous. Right. Yeah. Justin? I think, too, the, we can look back at history and we can see where they, that there were missionaries. I mean, even like the great William Carrier, Count Zinzendorf, and all these guys that are uh, out of Judson, they did this initial station model where they brought people in from, from the, the prevailing culture, they, they taught them English, they made them dress in an English way or in a, in a Western way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We can certainly look forward and say, man, we don't have to, we don't have to do all of that. We don't have to necessarily change the culture when they come to hear the gospel. Right. But at the same time, we can see that, <laughs> you can say maybe God can hit a straight leg with a crooked stick. Yeah. And you know what's amazing, too, is to think back, you know, I was reading this biography by a guy named Bruce Hunt, who was actually a, a missionary in South Korea, who, like, his, his method was simple. He would go door to door and just tell people about the gospel of Jesus. And it's just remarkable to me to think about uh, the, the ancestry of my faith, right, of how probably far back I could go to somebody just walking around a culture and neighborhood and inviting somebody to church or sharing the gospel of Christ with them, being the means by which God, God saved them. And so I think that's, a, that's an intriguing thought process. And I'll say this, I think in our culture right now, it's so difficult because with social justice being elevated to supreme in our country and everyone being a victim and everyone being so easily offended, we naturally want to run to the other end of the spectrum and say, well, if they're so easily offended, then I'm just not even going to talk to them or try and interact with their culture. And I listen, I'm guilty of that too because it bothers me because social justice and social constructs, we think, have, have become the easiest thing to blame in our society, haven't they? And yet, man, just, just let me give you encouragement. Just stick to the weapons that we always talk about, right? That's the safest way to get You want to invite another culture, don't, don't talk about social constructs or social. You, you talk about the gospel. Focus it all on the gospel because that's where we all come down, we bow a knee to. That's where we all agree and unite on. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know I'll catch you along. Let me pray for you and then we'll end, okay? Lord, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for... Uh, Lord, good conversation. And Lord, I thank you for how you've uh, Lord, convicted our hearts to the midst of this text. Lord, we, we want a multicultural church and we're, we're praying that you would provide that. And, and Lord, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come when, when we recognize that there is no 
Jew, Gentile, uh, Lord. There, there should be no reflection of, of church American style being, being prompted up to the nth degree of importance, Father. Even though that's our culture, we're not, we don't have to be ashamed of that. We can embrace that, but we, we ought to embrace all cultures because we know, Father, that you are going to cause every knee to bow and every tongue to confess from, from cultures all around the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so, Father, if we're not comfortable in, in multi-cultures and, and, and being around people who are not like us, then maybe we won't be very comfortable in heaven. Because that's what it's going to be like, Father. And so I, I thank you for how you've begun this work in us. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to strengthen us as we walk through this um, and apply your wisdom and truth to our lives. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.